Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Grounded with Pastor Matt Round. This is episode 16, and in this episode, we are going to be answering the question, how should we pray? It's part two to last week's episode, and Pastor Matt is going to answer it here for us. Hello, Pastor Matt. Hey, Noah. Uh, thanks for giving me the chance to do a follow-up here. I wanted to kind of put on maybe the other side of where we were next week. So last week, the question was, why don't my prayers get answered? And we worked through that. Um, we thought through the idea that God does hear our prayers and that our prayers actually do get answered. From our perspective, I think the trouble comes um, when the answer is no, or maybe when the answer is wait. And there might be a variety of reasons for that. Some deal with sin on our part. Some deal with kind of the greater plan of God as he accomplishes his will in our life. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that episode, then I'd encourage you to go back and do that. Uh, but to tie on to where we are or what we talked about, I wanted to think through how then we should pray. And again, prayer is a huge topic. Prayer is a critical topic in the life of a believer. And we cannot cover it in the scope of a few minutes on a single podcast or two podcasts or 10 podcasts. Uh, but I do want to make sure we hit some major themes, and I hope that they challenge and encourage you in your walk wherever you're at. So uh, there's a saying that goes around, and I heard it in seminary, that if you really want to kind of make your congregation feel guilty about something and move them in a sermon, there's always two very safe places you can go. One of them is witnessing to the lost. Uh, we know we should do it, but most of us fall short uh, with how we want to and we know that we should. And the second one is prayer. And in part, that's because we have this vague idea of what we're supposed to do. And we know that we are supposed to pray all the time and we have kind of a vague idea of what that looks like. We know the Lord's prayer. We know these various kind of commands. So we wind up knowing that we should pray and that we should do it all the time, but we don't really have an understanding of why or how. So the result tends to be frustration on our side, um, maybe even discouragement on our side and really what winds up happening is we lose this beautiful gift that prayer is designed to be. So how then should we pray? Well, thankfully, we don't want to figure that out on our own. God has told us in his word what prayer ought to look like. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching the crowds what it's going to look like for them to live as kingdom citizens. Uh, he calls them to be different, salt and light, uh, different and distinct from the world around them. He takes kind of the external expectations of the law. You've heard it said, and he moves the people on to an understanding of the heart motive behind those things, uh, the heart motive that ends up bearing itself out in physical actions. And then in chapter six, he begins with a warning about how you do what you do. He says, don't do things, even things that would be considered kind of right or religious, and don't do them externally. He calls it hypocritical. It's hypocritical worship, and it's designed to bring kind of the attention of other men rather than God. And in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the first answer to how we should pray is sincerely, not hypocritically. We, we pray to God. We pray for God. We pray with God as our audience rather than men. And then in verse seven, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says, don't pray in a way that kind of just piles up words. God's not impressed by your vocabulary. Our prayers are not measured by the number of theological words that we use or how long it takes us to say them. God already knows our need. So you're not 
going to manipulate God into acting on your behalf. Instead, prayer is a reflection of the heart of the worshiper. And so that's kind of the how not to pray. But if that's how not to pray, then how should we pray? And Jesus tells us. It's one of the most well-known parts of the Bible. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Although I really think it's probably better known as the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, it reflects the attitudes, the requests, the needs of a disciple of Christ. So what does it say? Again, we're all familiar with it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer should include, and I would even suggest that prayer should start with worship. And that's what this is. It recognizes the place of God. We call him Father. He's our Father, and it's a familiar term. It's a family term. It's a term that speaks to relationship, but he's our Heavenly Father. He's a Father who's unlike our earthly Father. He's a Father who is not like us. He's above us. He's exalted. It says his name is hallowed, holy, set apart. So there's kind of a tension there, and it's a really beautiful, precious tension. We can come before God. And we can go boldly and confidently. Hebrews talks about that. I can come to him like a son, uh, not like a stranger. Um, but I can never forget that when I come before God, I'm not coming before someone who's a peer. I'm coming before someone who is infinitely greater, infinitely wiser, infinitely more powerful than I am. So we usually move kind of right into asking God for something when we pray. There's a reason that Jesus starts this way. When we focus on, when we start with worship, it fixes our minds on who it is we're praying to. It kind of orients us in the right direction. It gives us the perspective that we need so that we can then pray in a way that honors him. And then what comes next? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the kingdom of God to come. What does that mean? It means a whole lot, and it means a lot more than we can go into here. But basically, we're praying that the power and the authority of God be demonstrated in every part, in every aspect of creation. And that ties in with the second part of that phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, we're asking that God's will be done. Prayer is this recognition, not just of who God is, but of his sovereignty, his authority, his lordship. Prayer recognizes that I might have any number of requests, that I might have a whole bunch of needs that I'm bringing before him. But I have to deal with the fact that I'm not praying that my will would be done in any of those things. Even where I think that my will is good and right, where my will might be obedient and even biblically informed, I'm praying for, more than praying for, I'm, I'm recognizing that it's better for the will of God to be accomplished than my own will to be accomplished. Well, what is God's will? We know that obedience is the will of God. Romans 12 says that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Thessalonians says that the will of God is our sanctification, that we would become more like Christ. 1 Thessalonians also says that uh, the will of God is that we give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Peter says that the will of God is that we do good. And 1 Peter also says that there are times when the will of God is that his people suffer and that that suffering refines our faith and moves us towards trust and dependence on God. So when we're praying for God's will to be done, we're recognizing that those things are his purposes and that his purposes and his will might take any number of forms and specific details in our lives. And it goes on, Matthew 6, verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. When we've worshipped and when we've submitted to the will of God, then it makes sense that we are in a right way of thinking to bring our needs before him. And in fact, he does invite us to bring our needs before him. He calls us to ask for our daily bread, not kind of extravagant wealth, but 
We ask God to meet even the most basic needs that we have. We trust that because he owns all things, that he's able to give his children exactly what they need out of his resources, which are infinite resources. He's able to meet our finite needs. And God does this in a number of ways. Sometimes it's through the very ordinary and maybe even boring means of work and a paycheck. Sometimes it's through the generosity of others. Sometimes God meets our needs through circumstances that we could never have planned, that we could never have even imagined. But we pray knowing that God calls us to ask for our needs and that God has promised then to meet the needs of his people. And then in 6.12, it says, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In our prayer, we recognize that we're sinful, that even though we know the Lord, we love the Lord, we are saved by the Lord, that we still sin and we fall short of his call for holiness. And we know from 1 John that when we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. But there's another aspect to this, and that's tied to our forgiveness of others. Uh, knowing that we've been forgiven should make you and I a very humble people. It should make us ready to forgive others. And the basic reason is that no one has ever or will ever sin against me to the degree that I've sinned against God. People might sin against me in a number of ways and a number of times, but every single time that I sin, it's ultimately a sin, not only against the individual person that I've sinned against, but every single time I sin, it's a sin against God. That The debt between God and I is so infinitely more than a debt that anyone else could owe to me. And to think that God has paid that massive debt of sin that I owed ought to make me eager to forgive others, that the forgiveness that we receive ought to make us eager to forgive that same kind of forgiveness to others. And we think of those areas that we continue to fall short. We continue to ask for mercy and forgiveness. This should be a regular part of our prayer life. And when it does, it kind of prods us to continually think about our relationships with others. If regularly confessing sin is a part of my prayer life, then so too will be regularly evaluating how I am forgiving others. It'll cause me to consistently think about, uh, are there grudges that I'm holding? Is there bitterness that I've allowed to build up in my life over some sin or some offense? Uh, are there people that I'm withholding forgiveness from, even though I've received forgiveness from God? So that forgiveness for ourselves and for others ought to be a consistent part of our prayer. And then finally, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when we pray, it's an opportunity to recognize our own weakness. We recognize that we face temptation and that we fail. And so we bring that reality before God. Uh, we don't assume our spiritual strength. We assume our complete spiritual dependence on God. Basically, this kind of prayer recognizes that if I was left to kind of fend for myself and try my best, that I would fail every time. And so I ask that God would lead me. We ask that he would guide us, that he would direct our paths. We ask that he would keep us from temptation, that he would keep us from the opportunity to sin, that he would deliver us from evil and specifically from the evil one. And we ask knowing that Jesus Christ has conquered the power of sin and death through his death, burial, and resurrection. So, so we pray with all of those things in mind. And when we pray that way, not even just the specific words, but when we remember those major themes when we pray with an eye toward worship, when we pray with our heart set on the will of God being accomplished, when we pray for our basic needs, knowing that he can meet them, when we pray with a heart that's sensitive to our own sin and that's eager to forgive others, when we pray understanding our own weakness, then it makes it possible to fulfill those other commands that are given with regard to prayer. When Paul 
says in Philippians 4, 6, that we're not to be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That only makes sense if we're thinking rightly. But when I am thinking rightly, when we are praying rightly, then thanksgiving is the only thing that makes sense. Because if the need is great, I'm reminded of the greatness of God. If the need impacts even the basic requirements, things like food or shelter, then I know that God has promised to provide those things. As temptation comes and I pray through that, as persecution comes and we pray through that, as trouble comes in whatever form it does, we can continue to be thankful because we're praying for his perfect will to be done in our life. And we know that whatever happens, God is working out that will for our eternal good. And so it makes sense then when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. Those major themes that cover kind of every part of our lives, then their natural expression is to be thought through in terms of prayer. Uh, Are things going great? Well, then prayer makes sense as a way to praise God, to thank him for who he is and what he's done. Um, Are things difficult? Is there heartache? Is there heartbreak? Then prayer reminds us of his love and his care and his compassion for his people. Uh, Is there a need that's greater than we could imagine? Prayer reminds us of the God who provides, who owns all things. So pray without ceasing. That command isn't a burden, and it's not a a kind of pharisaical requirement. It's not a box that we check off. When we actually understand who God is that we're praying to, when we actually understand what prayer is and how we ought to be praying, then to pray without ceasing just becomes a natural response that kind of grows in my relation to what I think about God. The more I think about God, the more rightly I think about God, the bigger God is in my mind, the more natural it is for me to entrust and to take everything that burdens me, that brings me joy, that challenges me, the more natural it is for me to take everything to him. And so then I think maybe the last question is, what do we expect then? If this is how we're supposed to pray, if we're supposed to pray humbly, but confidently, then what should we expect will happen? Well, I think, first of all, we should pray And then we should expect that God's will will be done. If we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, we begin to have an understanding biblically of what that is. Then we pray confidently knowing that God's will absolutely will be accomplished. Isaiah 46 uh, verses 9 through 11 says this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. So God says, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. So we can pray with absolute confidence and with the full expectation that God is going to do absolutely everything that he intends to do. No accidents. There's no misstep. uh, There's no situation in my individual life, in my family's life, in the life of a nation, a country, a people, uh, in human history. There's no situation that's overlooked or that just slips by him. And second, we should pray expecting that God will provide. In that same Sermon on the Mount that we were talking about, Jesus reminds his disciples that God looks after the needs of the birds and the flowers, and his children are far more precious to him than birds or flowers. So we don't need to be anxious for anything. Instead, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then we can then expect that all of those other things, all of those other needs will be met. All those things will be added to us, from the basic physical needs to our much greater need to be made more like him.
And third, we can expect peace. When we pray rightly, we come to God like he calls us to. And when we do that, we can expect him to bring peace to our hearts. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we've read it before, but he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we bring all things to God in prayer, when we come before him with thanksgiving, when we tell him our cares and our needs, his promise right there in his word is to give us peace. So in other words, if I pray and I don't find my heart being brought to peace, the problem isn't with God. The problem is that in some way, in some aspect, I've forgotten who it is that I'm praying to. So we move back through those steps of prayer. We begin with worship. We begin with acknowledging who God is and what he's able to do. And when we rightly understand God, when we pour out our prayers to him that align with those major theological truths, then we are able to not only have peace, but peace that surpasses all understanding, peace that makes no sense given tumultuous or even terrifying circumstances. Thank you very much, Pastor Matt, for helping us dissect how we should pray. And thank you very much for listening to this episode. And next week, we will be covering the question, how can I die to self and carry my cross? It's a fundamental part of living in Christ. So Pastor Matt's going to help us tackle that next week. If you have any questions of your own, email us at groundedwithmattround at gmail.com or visit our website, groundedwithmatt.com for more information on how you can get in contact with us. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.